0: Welcome to the Women in Archaeology podcast, a podcast about for and by women in the field. I'm Emily Long and I'm joined by my fellow hosts, Chelsea Slaton and Kirsten Lopez. One of our previous guests, the fabulous Dr. Jillian Wong, connected us to a fellow zooarchaeologist and PhD pal, Dr. Shyama Vermeers. We are fortunate to have Shyama with us today. Thank you so much for joining us.
1: Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited. I love the podcast, Um really excited to see where this will go. We are too, and
0: we are very lucky. She sent us um her CV ahead of time, so we got to see all the things that Shyama <laughs> is interested in, and I am so excited that she's here on the episode, and that we have so much to talk.
2: I mean, we all had the benefit of reading the lovely introduction that you provided um to us, but our listeners have not had that benefit so um if you could give a a quick intro of yourself i'm sure that the listeners will be as excited as we are to continue to hear you talk
1: so i am originally an egyptologist i got my ba and ma at the university of leuven uh, which is in belgium for those of you who don't know that And then I kind of got tired of hieroglyphics and wanted to expand my horizons, so I decided to pursue a master's in zooarchaeology, which took me to Germany in 2014. And I got my master's there, and then I stuck around to do a PhD. Uh, The title of my PhD was uh, The Development of Subsistence Strategies from the Bronze through Iron Ages in the Southern Levant. And I got my PhD last June. So
2: pretty fresh. Congratulations.
1: Thank you. Uh, It was very exciting. Uh, Just the fact of surviving that in a pandemic was also just a huge feat. Yeah. And yeah, since I actually, after my PhD, like five weeks later, I moved to Groningen, which is in the Netherlands for my first real job as a doctor, where I'm a research and teaching assistant in zooarchaeology. And that's a bit what I've been doing professionally. I've been on excavations in a lot of places, but mainly focused in Southwestern Asia. I've been trying to be a bit more involved in EDI issues, so equality or equity, diversity, inclusivity. So I've been that's working a bit so on that. So
2: important. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, it's something I've. I wish I could say I've been invested in these topics since you know the beginning of my academic career, but it was very much a process to get to the point where I'm comfortable to speak about these things and also comfortable enough to be one of these, um, you know, on the forefront of these discussions.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh, fair enough, and that's definitely a topic I think we'll all want to dive into. But before go hurtling down different uh, topics, Mm -hmm. I'd love to know, like, what was it about zoarchaeology that made you want to switch over? Because I think so many of us in archaeology make pretty big research changes. Like, I thought I was going to be like a medieval historian and archaeologist, and it's like, nope, I'm a southwestern archaeologist (laughs) in the United (laughs) States. So I'd love to know, like, was it just you're just like suddenly drawn to... Little animal bones instead of hieroglyphics.
1: So, yeah, towards the end of my Egyptology degree, I was very much disillusioned. So, as a kid, you know, I was really interested in these big cultures, you know, the ancient Egyptian Empire, the Hittites, Assyrians. And so that's why I got into Egyptology in the first place. But then I'm just not the type of person who finds joy in grammar. Uh, mm-hmm. so I did think it was fun translating hieroglyphics but I realized it really wasn't my my thing to just sit and translate a lot and so mm-hmm. I kind of felt a bit lost during my masters in Belgium and then I took a course which was an uh, introduction to zoo archeology which was very theoretical did not touch a single bone oh. and it yeah it was because zoo archaeology in Louvre where I studied wasn't really established it's and it still isn't in Belgium, actually. And we had this guest lecturer from Brussels come in, Wem uh, van Nier. And so he taught us about the theory behind zooarchaeology. And mm-hmm. I thought, well, that's actually really cool. And looking at from an Egyptological perspective, there's a lot of animals in ancient Egypt. Um, it's in religion. You have these animal mummies. You have these pet cemeteries. So it didn't feel as big a jump as it ended up being mm-hmm. in my mind it was very much okay i will i asked when vanir where can i study this he guided me and then in my mind it was okay i'll go to this university i'll get this degree i'll still be able to work in egypt sudan or just ancient egyptian culture in general and i'll just be using a different material to do that instead of pure archaeology or pure hieroglyphics, I'm going to be working with something I can touch, Mm
2: -hmm. something
1: I can see and compare, because often with grammar, it gets a bit fuzzy. So you can, usually in hieroglyphics, you'll have one verb, and you can interpret this a few ways, and then because of context, yeah, it gets really confusing. Um, And there are fabulous people out there who do a wonderful job with this. But for me, I just wanted something a bit more concrete, something I can touch, something where if I show this bone to 10 people, 10 people will tell me the same answer, so to speak. Mm -hmm. So that's why I switched, really. And I haven't regretted it since, so it's been a good decision. That's awesome. (laughs) That
2: is really awesome. It is nice to have those like tangible elements of... Of the past, it always like cracks me up in movies where they're like, "Oh yes, we can read this ancient script that miraculously also rhymes in whatever <laughs> language I'm translating it into." And here's this like beautiful translation. When in reality, you know, if movies reflected, it, it would be like, "Well, I mean, that could be dog, or uh, maybe you know, being being unwell, or I mean, sometimes it's used as." As slang for somebody's, I mean, it's really unclear. So maybe they're saying that the dog is cute. And maybe they're saying that the unclean thing is good. But like in a sarcastic way, I'm not really sure what's going like. Yeah, that's what the translation is.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I totally agree. Like, like I said, there are fabulous people who are really good at this. I know quite a few of them. But indeed, there's like many languages which have gone extinct. It's just so hard. And as someone who, well, I guess I'm a bit more active and I like seeing things, touching things, defining things, hieroglyphics wasn't like I had a good time learning them and I guess if I were to refresh my memory, I still could translate, but it's not where my heart is at. So, yeah, I totally understand what you mean with the, like, weird translations. And,
2: (laughs) I mean... It's not just, like, ancient languages. It's modern languages, too. Because there Mm -hmm. is a period where you would be like, oh, man, that's nasty. But it was like, nasty was great. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, and like or someone wicked. without like context of that, like slang would be like, oh, this was a bad thing when in actuality it was a good thing. So like it, it's hard even for like if, if you're learning a second language, even if it's a living mm-hmm. language, it's hard and it just gets so much harder. Like props to everyone who does translations of dead languages. I'm very impressed
1: yeah, same. <laughs> As someone who left that field, I'm very impressed since I know the kind of work and hours that go into uh, that. Um, unfortunately, I think the only long-term use I could make out of my hieroglyphic knowledge was when I was single and then I could impress people by writing the word for beer or poop and then, you know, people would love me. That's awesome. <laughs> uh, they, but those days, yeah. exactly
0: (laughs) well out of curiosity so within uh zooarchaeology like is there a specific kind of faunal remains you like to study are there like little critters or fish or 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 ungulates that you're like that's my jam
1: so i'm i guess you could call me a traditional zooarchaeologist so i deal with a lot of normal animals, let's call them. So your average sized animals. So I would say I would analyze everything that's the size from a bunny or a hare and bigger. So that's what I look into. I also do some birds, but I will not touch fish. I will not (laughs) touch microfauna. It's too small. I wear glasses, pretty strong glasses, actually. And I can't deal with the fuzz of being behind a microscope. So I like things that I can see with the bare eye. Uh, And because of the region I work in, which, like I said, is Southwestern Asia, a lot of the animals I look at, I would say actually the majority of what I look at are sheep and goat. So maybe it's Stockholm Syndrome, but I have definitely come to love them. And they're such cool creatures. They're so interesting. And even nowadays, I mean... They goats will eat plastic like who does that
3: (laughs) (laughs) I always wondered with the stuff that goats eat I'm like doesn't that like sorry doesn't that like damage the internal like soft bits don't you have soft bits goat inside (laughs) like how does that work with the esophagus and the stomach I just don't understand
1: it's not good for them (laughs) like I don't think they're happy about it but I'm it's not that they're too dumb to realize this either i think it's just a lack of other nourishment and probably they just ate the plastic because that's around and they managed to swallow it down Mm -hmm. i'm not sure like what the goat rationale is behind that i don't know they are quite smart
3: they are there's um up here in the pacific northwest there's a problem with the himalayan blackberry being like super crazy invasive and one of the things that uh, or the best ways that people have found to take care of it is to do goats on property. So there's actually several um, groups in the region that rent out goats. So they're, they will like fence off a small area and free the goats in it. And after a couple of days, they eat all of the invasive species, which is weird. It's like they don't really touch the, the stuff that's native to the Northwest. They'll eat, like, all the Himalayan blackberry, but leave the native blackberry alone. Huh. Um, super interesting. And some of the other stuff. Yeah, it's kind of, kind of wicked. But if you leave them in there too long, they'll eat it all. But like, that's, <laughs> their, that's their preference. Um, and they love the Himalayan blackberry. So that's a, a crazy, like... Thing. I've always been interested yeah. and intrigued with that domesticated goat. I'm like, that's because they they grew up in the same place, right? Mm-hmm. Like, it's the Himalayan is a misnomer; it's from the Levant area. Um, the blackberry, I believe, originally, um, and it was brought here as like a garden plant, and it escaped because the berries are tasty, so birds, you know, oh, yeah. you know and shit it out everywhere. Yeah. And um, <clears throat> it's just. Yeah really a fascinating like uh i don't know what the word is that i'm thinking of but like um a, like serendipitous uh, accident of Yay. colonialism or something like that <laughs> yeah well, <that's, laughs> that Everything that comes
0: down. curious so so we've got our are different goats and sheep and whatnot today are the type that you study are those like the, the, the can you tell if they're the domesticated kind or are you in that period where they've already been domesticated
1: yeah so the periods i mainly study are the bronze through iron ages and during that time in the southwestern asia the goats and sheep are domesticates so that's Most Mm -hmm. of what I'm seeing, however, especially in the Bronze Age, there's still a large hunting component. So on occasion, you will find traces of wild goats or wild sheep. Uh, It's hard to confirm that just based on bone morphology. So that's the way bones look like. Mm -hmm. But you can do it usually based on size. That would be a first. Like if you have a really giant bone that obviously belongs to a sheep or a goat, you could make an assumption that this is probably not a domesticated Uh, animal but a wild one so yeah the bronze age gets wild because we deal with domesticates and wild animals which makes things so confusing at times
0: oh yeah i can believe it it makes me wonder what a like feral sheep would look
1: like just like this crazy (laughs) don't get me started just like "Ah!" Yeah. Oh gosh, yeah. I'm not even going to go into feral cuz how cuz that would look like a domesticated sheep or goat, but then it would behave like a semi-wild one. So how mm-hmm. can we retrace so that? It's yeah. yeah. <laughs> terrifying.
2: Terrifying. I mean, I'm just thinking <laughs> the difference between domesticated pigs and like wild boars, which are obviously radically different. And I'm just imagining, you know, a sheep running around with like even wiry hair and tusks or something like
1: clearly not <laughs> like a flesh. killer goat. My, my imagination
2: has gone wild.
1: <laughs> <laughs> if goats well, had tusks, they would be unbeatable, like oh apex God. predators. Yeah.
0: They'd be it's terrifying. Wild. We'd there'd be I'm sure fewer or what would it be like? There'd probably be graves of people with weird cut marks on their bones, like. <laughs> what horned and tusked animal did this
1: (laughs) killer goat obviously
3: (laughs) well it it makes me wonder because in my um some of my early um undergrad classes i remember seeing comparatives of like um the oh goodness let's see of course now i'm blinking. the name of the 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 animal but the 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 pre-cow oh god oh oryx oryx thank you um the size difference between an oryx and a domesticated cow i mean obviously they come in a range of sizes but like i it just completely floored me the the difference Mm -hmm. in size and i'm like i don't know if that's something that like is there a comparable size difference between the the wild and domesticated for the sheep and goat? I know there are a lot of other changes, but I'm curious
1: what that size difference is or looks like. Mm-hmm. So indeed, between oryx and cattle, there is a very large size difference. Uh, that size difference does get a bit wonky once they start interbreeding, of course, but in general, yeah, there's a big difference there. With sheep and goat, there is a size difference, but I think it isn't as clear as with the oryx and cattle. Uh, And it's the same for pigs and wild boar. There's quite a large zone of size overlap there. So the the only really, I would say, established method to differentiate wild sheep and goat from domesticates and the same for pigs and boars would be doing a lot of intensive measurements which people don't always have the time for. So then, often in the faunal reports, you'll see, you'll see a small section where it's just like boar slash pig, because they didn't want to make any statements. Because of of course, especially in the Bronze and Iron Ages, it does make a huge difference if you're going to say this is mainly domestic or wild.
0: Oh, mm. that's understandable. It's like our what our use of ritual.
2: <laughs> It's a ritual item, (laughs) yeah.
1: (laughs) But it's better to err on the
2: side of caution.
1: Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, you don't want to say... Because I think this is what mainly the point of contention is, is once you start getting into the Bronze Age, which is fairly standard, so people expect a lot of domesticus and you expect people to eat domesticated animals and cereals and stuff like that, um, hunting just plays like such a extra role so it's always seen as something slightly special and as something that needs to be investigated closer so indeed it's better to err on the side of caution for that hmm,
0: that's really cool and I think the good way to close out that topic for this segment or we can always talk about it more this is fascinating in the next 20 minutes but for now we are going to take a break did you know that we have a blog check out the women in archaeology website for a variety of blog posts as well as past episodes Interested in supporting the podcast? From the website, you can check out our Patreon account and learn about the different ways to help support the blog and podcast. We can give you a cool sticker in return. Again, thank you for listening. Welcome back to the Women in Archaeology podcast. Our guest today is the wonderful Dr. Shiyama Vermeers. And we've been talking about her research. We were, in the previous segment, we were talking about domesticated animals and um, mutant sheep goats, which sound very exciting. If um, the sci-fi channel hasn't already had a movie about mutant sheep goats, we call uh, copyright copyright. give us all give us all the the patent money yes (laughs) um in this segment we'd love to hear more about your dissertation and your work um you want to dive right into what you were studying and what results came out of it
1: yeah, sure. So as I mentioned before, my dissertation was focusing on reconstructing the developments in animal husbandry from the Bronze through Iron Ages in the Southern Levant. So perhaps I need to give like a short one one here. That would because, be
0: perfect.
1: Yeah. Cause I think a lot of people might not know where is it? When is it? So to make things really easy, the bronze and iron ages in this region, they start around, let's say 4000 BCE, and they run through about 500 BCE. So it's quite a big time frame, And I already mentioned before the Southern Levant, so that would be the areas of present day Lebanon, Israel, Palestine, and Jordan. And even though it's this tiny region And I would say, looking at the grand scheme of things, it's a small period of time. A lot of things are happening here. We see so many political developments, cultural developments, social and economic developments. So things really get crazy here. They get really fast paced. And just so you realize a bit on what's happening here we see the development of the first real urban centers with a hinterland so there's some of that like urban versus rural going on we see crazy fortifications some of them are like 40 meters thick Uh, there's a settlement hierarchy which like many things in life the bigger you are the bigger your fortifications are the more important Mm -hmm. you are we see influx of new people we see crazy international trade in the late Bronze Age, um, not even like what we expect of these time periods, where it's just, you know, trade with your, let's say, neighboring countries. We see trade between um, the Southern Avant and countries like China or India. Oh so it's wild. So a lot of things are happening here. And that's what makes this period really interesting and this region really interesting because we see a lot of diversity as well in precipitation, so rainfall, but also geography, so mountains, coastal areas, plains. So it's just really a wild area to work in. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, it was ignored for quite a while or wasn't like really the subject of interest for many because it's kind of... I guess you could consider it the ugly stepsister of this region because it's smushed. <laughs> I, know, I think this is the best way to explain it. because it's, <laughs> it's like smushed between these mega empires. You've got the Assyrians, you've got the Hittites, you've got the ancient Egyptians, you've got the Babylonians. And then there's this region where we don't really have these mega empires. They have some kingship happening in the Iron Age, but that's mainly of relevance, you know, a lot of people see relevance there, because that's also the period of like the Bible stories. But it's usually kind of an afterthought. And so that's why I was really interested in taking up this PhD, just to see what kind of things happen here. Mm -hmm. And initially, I was looking at animal husbandry, I was doing a lot of literature research to create a database, so we knew what had already been published. So that's all these funnel reports that you see um, in books, but also published in journals. And then I did some work of my own. So I worked on the material of three sites. Um, Lachish, which is this like huge city, like huge urban center with a lot going on. Uh, Tel el Burak, which is like an agricultural center. And then Kaysan, uh, which was also kind of... Uh, yeah, an important settlement near the coast as well mm. and so it was a bit of a mixture of things i was looking into to see how things develop like what are the main species they eat does it change do we see regional changes that kind of thing and as i was doing this of course it was really interesting but mm. it got me thinking because animal husbandry really is only just one part of the story if we're really trying to reconstruct agriculture which we were trying to do in the project I was part of. We also had an archipotanist uh, Mm -hmm. involved. And I realized we were only getting part of the story Mm because in past societies, and even nowadays, I would argue, uh, animal husbandry and crop cultivation, so animals and crops, are really just two sides of the same coins. And how can we get that complete picture? How can we understand subsistence? How can we understand agriculture? If you always only focus on one part of the story, like nowadays, of course, you could argue perhaps, okay, we have a lot of vegetarians, we have vegans, so maybe you could, but in past societies, it's not really, or at least there's no evidence for that, as far as I know, but we definitely know people can't survive by just eating meat. It's too Mm. costly. And that's where halfway through my PhD, you know, these thoughts were already brewing. And then halfway through it, I decided to just go for it. So... I went to the archaeobotanist in charge and she was really excited uh, at the institute. And basically the conversation was something like, Are you ready to do this crazy endeavor where we're gonna combine <laughs> everything? Like I had one and a half years to go on my PhD, and I was like, Yeah, sure, I see no problem in this. Like, what could go wrong? <laughs> You know, Just and then it's no sleep for the
0: next
2: year. It's all famous <laughs> last words. Yeah.
1: I know, right? It's like that in the movie. That's like where the frame stands still, and it's like you wonder how I how I came to this point. <laughs> where, you know, this is where it all started,
0: yes.
1: and it was a crazy endeavor because we didn't have the funds to run fancy analyses. We didn't have the funds for isotopes and things like that. So not only was I going on this crazy endeavor. I also had to do it budget-friendly and so that's where I got into statistics. So then Mm -hmm. took a few months, took a lot of frustration and a lot of like struggling with software, but eventually we managed to integrate all of the botanical and formal data
0: Mm -hmm.
3: and
1: yeah, and that really became, I would say, the cherry on top of the cake of that, which was my PhD. Uh, It's what I had the most fun doing and so what we did basically, we looked at these sites, so which sites have fauna, collected that, ran them through statistics, we did the same for botany and then we tried doing the same of sites from a certain time period where we had botany and fauna and that was the first crazy oh damn moment because you see almost this kind of waterfall effect where there's quite a lot of sites. Let's just say, and these numbers are not exact, like they're in my publications, but on the top of my head, I would say like, for fauna, we had about 70 sites. And then for botany, we had about 50 sites. And so you'd kind of expect like, oh, okay, so we'll have like 50 sites maximum where we have fauna and botany for a site from a period or you know maybe a bit less
0: mm-hmm.
1: but it really drops dramatically. so at the end we only had 16 sites and those consisted of something like 24 samples um, of, of you know material where we had both botany and fauna. So it really shows mm-hmm. that this in itself is an afterthought that people aren't really considering that the two are complementary and shouldn't just be disciplines put next to each
0: other-hmm yeah.
1: And so, yeah, we ran all our analyses and a, a bunch of cool stuff came out. Like, we noticed that looking at the fauna, you see this trend where in the early Bronze Age, middle Bronze Age, you see at least for the animal husbandry, it's quite dominated by, um, by pigs, for instance. And uh, looking at crops, they're mainly dominated by emmerweeds. Uh, which is a kind of cereal. Mm -hmm. And then towards the late Bronze Age and Iron Ages, we see a shift where we see mainly dromedaries and we see free threshing wheat. Uh, Those are just like the main uh, differences. And so then you kind of start looking into the whys and the how comes. And some differences can be explained really easily. So, for instance, uh, why do we only see dromedaries from the late Bronze Age and Iron Ages? Why are they really present there and not earlier? Well, that's just because dromedaries were introduced in the late Bronze Age in the Southern Levant. So, what that's is kind a of a... dromedary? Oh, it's a, a one-hunt camel. Oh. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Uh, one humped camels. Yeah. yeah. And then... Oh, that's so cool. Yeah. So, I mean, that's kind of an easy one to explain. Like you don't even need fancy stats for doing that, right? Just some literature research, really. But then there's things like looking at um, uh, pigs. Pigs are really controversial, a topic here, because obviously in an area where you have like these key monotheistic religions, you know, especially looking at present day Israel, it's really like, it's really important for Judaism and for Islam where pig, uh, pork consumption is prohibited mm-hmm. so it automatically becomes kind of a topic once you're dealing in the bronze and iron ages because that's where all these biblical and muslim tales take place mm-hmm. and so yeah with pig consumption you see that in the early and middle bronze age pigs are more present and then they kind of peter out in the late bronze age and iron age and it's still quite controversial because um why does that happen there's a lot of theories there my favorite one is that with the introduction of chickens in the iron age pigs kind of got pushed aside because well pigs offer like pigs are really good at producing a lot of meat with minimal input like they gain weight so fast Mm
0: -hmm.
1: but and they eat all of your trash so it's really practical but then it doesn't really do much except for providing meat and eventually it will start eating your food as well. And then from a government point of view, pigs are really unhandy because you can't transport them. They're not really meant for long distance travel. So you can't really tax them as well either. And it all comes back to money. Exactly. And chickens, well, they're kind of tiny and they lay eggs. So, and they also eat human waste. So it's kind of practical, and you'll even see in villages nowadays like a bunch of chickens walking around. You get eggs if it's too old or it's, you know, you don't want it anymore. Slaughter chicken, meat for a family. It's not really that much of an investment. So it's easier. You can also transport them easily, tax them, they're tiny, right? So that's my favorite theory. That's um, really
0: cool. And you're seeing all of this kind of like interconnectedness with the like now we have chicken bones and now we've got this. Yeah. It's just this flow. Of exactly. to the site. That's really
1: cool. So you see a lot of this. And then, of course, you'll see exceptions. Like we do see in the Iron Age, there was this huge spike in the data of pig bones. And then you look at the raw data, and it's just this one Iron Age site, uh, which is a Philistine urban center. So the Philistines is one of these migratory people which come in the Southern Levant. And they like pig. Yeah, and that's a just pork. something like I think is very relatable nowadays, where if you move a place you will adapt to the diet there but you will also try and get some of the foods you're used to at home so that's a bit what i think is happening there although it's still like a bit controversial not enough data from these people have been published but so i feel like i'm also digressing here but so yeah a lot of the <laughs> a lot of the data you know we did see this like these general trends but then we also see flukes and it's these flukes which contradict the trends which get really interesting like I mentioned, you have this transition from emmer wheat to free threshing weeds. So these are just kind of grains. And that general development is similar than what we see to Mesopotamia. It just happens mm-hmm. like there it happens in the Middle Bronze Age. So it happens a bit earlier. And then you again see like certain sites don't do that. They keep focusing on emmer weeds. And if you go through the literature you can then see that these usually are settlements which have strong trading ties to, for instance, ancient Egypt. And ancient Egypt was really interested in getting commodities from the southern Levant. For most of its time during the Bronze and Iron Ages, it was also a colony or a vassal state. And so ancient Egyptians are like, you know what? Why don't you give me some of that, like emmer so we can brew some beers. And while you're at it, can you give me a bit more of these grapes and this so we can make wine? And so... I really enjoy seeing these exceptions because they really help make it a bit more alive. It shows this interconnectivity Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. yeah. And so then hearing me talk like this, you know, I'm still talking about like either an animal or, or a, a crop species. So you could say, well, where's the interconnectivity there? Well, it starts when you look at what's happening or how we can interpret things. So, at one of the sites I worked at Lachish, which is in the Shephelah region um, in the iron age too. So this is the time where Assyrians really conquered the Southern Levant. We see an increase of adult sheep. So there's more adult sheep than there's adult goats and there's more sheep than goats in general. And so again, the question is like, why does this happen? And so first we look at climate. And so, stable isotope analysis, which has been done on crops like barley or grapes um, or flax, actually showed the environment was more moist. And Mm. sheep thrive in a more moist or humid climate. They do this way Mm -hmm. better than sheep, uh, sorry, than goats. But that in itself is not enough to warrant this interest in adult sheep all of a sudden. And so, then that's where you also look at what's happening culturally. And so the Neo-Syrians kind of invade the southern Levante. It's like very dramatic. They're burning down settlements. Uh, Lachish, for instance, is actually doing it's not great for them. Their city gets burnt down like throughout its history, like six times. It's crazy. Oh <laughs> it's like why are no, you still living here? Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, you. <laughs> right? You'd think so. But you know, they're apparently, you know, the conditions are really good. It's a huge um, it's called a tell which is just like a man-made mountain so Mm -hmm. it's like there's some benefits but yeah coming back to these Assyrians they're like okay we conquered you so yeah pay some pay some taxes like we like wool like pay us some wool pay us some oil and so maybe that's why you see this increase in adult sheep because they will give you more wool in longer periods of time
3: that's mm-hmm. what I was just wondering because I'm like I had to google it real quick I'm like wait when did sheep get wool again <laughs> like because I know that that yeah that yeah. selection happened much later than the domestication yeah itself.
1: especially in the iron ages and also in the bronze ages this is a huge thing like I was talking about the southern levant is like the ugly little stepsister um but <laughs> We also lack a lot of literary documents, so again like if you look at Mesopotamia, there's these wonderful records which talk about the size of flocks, the amount of wool, where they are, and that's fabulous data to have, but unfortunately, um, just for the Southern Levant, it's missing. I'm also thinking now, because
2: I mean you did mention climate potentially playing a role, and And I mean, this is going back several years into my kind of like ancient Egyptian, all right, we're talking undergrad, so apologize because this is (laughs) going to be uh, iffy, but isn't there a theory um, that like part of why like bits of of ancient Egypt started kind of falling off um, or you know, are kind of, like, disappearing from the the record is because there was some sort of climate shift where, like, the Nile wasn't doing its normal mm. pattern of flooding. So all of a sudden, like, families who used to be able to have all of these riches would, were willing to trade all of these riches for, like, wheat or, you know, just, like, sustenance from other places. And could that, like, potentially... This may also be entirely, like, not comparable uh, timings, because like I said, undergrad. Um, no, uh,
1: you're definitely on to. I think what you're referring to is what before used to be called the late Bronze Age collapse. That's not really an unvoked term anymore because collapse has like all these negative connotations, but I think that's mm-hmm. what you're referring to. Because... That does sound right,
2: yes. Again, this was a while ago, so <laughs> apologies.
1: No, no, you're completely on the spot. It's like, you're right in what you're saying. Uh, So yeah, that's uh, another thing which really is interesting because that's a, indeed, it used to be called a collapse, but it's this period of very drastic change and it does correlate to climatic change. So we do see a more humid environment turning into more arid. And there's a lot of theories going around. It's not just climate change, which, you know, immediately induces chaos. It's almost an interwoven web of things that go wrong. Like if you're looking at things nowadays, for instance, maybe there's one thing that happens and it kind of unchains all these other things happening. You know, if you look at the pandemic in the beginning, what, you know, chaos that caused. um, I think it's nice to use that as an image of what was happening in the late Bronze Age. So because the climate gets more drier, you have crops that fail. You need to take your animals further away for pasture. Perhaps there's even some conflict there. And you see some letters being written from like local important men to kings of Egypt or elsewhere. They're saying like, hey, man, our crops are failing. We're hungry. What do we do? Can you send us stuff? Because, yeah, people are not happy here. And mm-hmm. so you do see, you get the sense of a lot of drama happening where, you know, so crops are failing. Animals are getting hungry. You need to take them further. And the thing is, like, down south in the Sardamavan, things weren't as bad. So you also have this huge displacement of people, which then, of course, causes conflicts as well. And so it's kind of this thing where one thing leads to another, and that leads to another, and that leads to another. And so in the end, you do see the the downfall, really, of these mega-empires, because, let's be honest, the larger your infrastructure is, the more complicated it gets, the more susceptible it is to small... Changes actually, you know, causing these cataclysmic events. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I hope that answered your question. Yeah, that's that's great. Thank you so much.
0: And I think that brings us to the close of our second segment. I I love all this information because it really shows how interconnected so many things are that even though we have our very specific fields of study that when you reach out, like Gemma did um with looking at the like you know the plants and everything and combining everything we can see how interconnected everything is and how that can really help give a much bigger picture to what's happening in the past so this is awesome and stay tuned for our third segment looking for other archaeology podcasts? There's so many to choose from. Why not try Arche fantasies and bust myths surrounding ancient finds and people? Or learn about the study of animal bones and archae animals? There's also the great Go Dig a Hole and the Ark and Anth podcasts. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to the Women in Archaeology podcast and all of these fun archaeology podcasts that are available on iTunes, Spotify, all over the place. Thanks for listening! Welcome back to the Women in Archaeology podcast. On our last segment, we were talking with Shyama about um, her research, the dissertation, about all kinds of wonderful topics. With that, on this segment, we're going to shift gears a little bit about some other topics that are incredibly important to her. Um, Shyama, I'm very excited to hear your work with uh, gender equity, gender equality, if you would like to start with that.
1: Yeah, so with the gender equity, I wish I could have told you all that this is something I've been very involved with since I started my academic career, uh, but unfortunately, that's not a story I can tell. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, just because I'm this is a podcast and you can't see what I look like, I'm a basically I'm a yeah I'm a brown woman. I'm a person of color. And I come from a mixed background. So my dad's a Belgian, hence I have a very uh, Flemish or Belgian family name. And my mom's from India, so that's why I have an Indian first name. And so even with that, there's some mixed, you know, thoughts and feelings because I come from a mixed background. So things, you know, I observe things a bit differently there. Mm-hmm. Um but it also means that I am perceived differently. So, throughout my academic career, I faced a lot of um, inappropriate comments and uh, situations. You know, I've had people and professors call me um, ethnically ambiguous. I, have... <laughs> I know. <laughs> uh, I've had people uh, tell me that, you know, really badger me down to find out what my heritage is, where I'm from how it works only to remark with oh that's why you look that way but don't worry it suits you and I'm just like well I forgot my white skin at home so I guess this is a good thing so a lot of these things happen and it took me a long time to accept them for what they were because I like to call it friendly racism where people don't think it is something bad they think Mm -hmm. it's a compliment but it is definitely not a compliment so Mm -hmm. don't go calling your people of color friends exotic Uh. or compliment their skin that's just strange but moving on to the gender equity so it took me a long time to first of all just place this because i as especially as women people of color in society we get a lot of these thoughts and brain that we should accept this we should just you know they don't mean it that way mm-hmm. um we make that doesn't up, make it okay exactly but we are taught to make excuses for the person who is doing the harassment and
2: mm-hmm. that's for
1: a lot of things yeah. and so that's something i was subject to as well so i would make excuses like He's old. He didn't mean it that way. Mm -hmm. He's naive. And so you just bottle all these things up. You bottle being othered for so long that you kind of get conditioned to it.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And only by, by having some really severe things happen to me, by talking to other people in similar situations, so women or minorities or people who look similar to me, Um, only by talking to them and realizing that this is not just something that happens to me. This is something that happens to other people who don't fit the mold. is when I started realizing like, this is something that is systemic. This is something that is almost accepted. Um, It's tolerated and that can't happen. And so, yeah, it took some, I guess, some, soul exploring for me to come to that point and also be Mm -hmm. fed up with the situation. And I still didn't do anything. Right. Even though it's hard to
0: know what to do when it seems so pervasive.
1: Exactly. And it's not just that, but a lot of it, and we talked a bit about this in the break, but a lot of it is tied into power dynamics Mm -hmm. and, retribution so if I'm going to complain about this professor who called me this racial slur is that going to bite me back down the line because he still needs to grade me for getting my degree or is he going to well screw me when he needs to be a reviewer on my paper or my grant proposal so there's Mm -hmm. a lot of that going on as well as a woman of color if I stand up for myself Oftentimes I'll be called bossy or loud or angry or emotional. And so a lot of that ties into the factor why I didn't speak up, but why a lot of other people don't speak up. It's um, a lot of fear, which is ingrained there as well. Mm-hmm. And so for me to finally take a stand, it was towards the end of my PhD. And I'd been going through a lot throughout the PhD as well. And then I saw there was this nonprofit, which had just been founded in Tübingen, where I did my dissertation in the south of Germany. And it was a nonprofit which was focusing on achieving gender equity at the university. And I don't know what clicked in me, but I think it was finally this opportunity for me to try and change things. So I became a member, quickly became a coordinator. And so we would... Um, we would organize all these activities. So we'd organize lectures on equity, diversity, inclusivity. We would organize um, talks by women in science. We would organize pub nights or we even did a virtual movie screening of "Picture of scientists, which is a really, it's a really heartbreaking documentary, but I highly recommend it. Um, but anyway, we're organizing all these things to raise awareness on these issues And I did it for about a year and it's very emotionally draining, of course, because you Mm -hmm. deal with so many of these darker sides of academia and the stories. And this is the saddest part, even though you might hear a hundred individual stories, they all merge into the same narrative. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure like you also all must have experienced these things. It's nothing uncommon, unfortunately. It's almost, Mm -hmm. yeah, it's so systemic. Um, um, Joel
2: trying to lighten uh, the mood I know right (laughs) thanks baby
1: Um, yeah and so what I realized at the end of my term as you know a coordinator for this group was that I still was feeling so dissatisfied because Mm -hmm. if I'm going to organize an event about the data on gender inequity or a talk about mental health in academia only the people who already support those ideas are going to attend those events. And mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that's really mm-hmm. great. People should get more informed. But what you really need to, or what you really need to have for change to happen is to have that demography who doesn't believe in it, who ignores it, really attend and become aware of these. And yeah, that was something I was really struggling with because I felt like I was just shouting into a void mm-hmm. and I wasn't making change. And so now I've since moved to Groningen, which is in the north of the Netherlands. And I joined um, the Young Arts Network here, which is an organization which is really focusing on making lives better for early career researchers. And they engage or re engage with the faculty board and external stakeholders and so that's where I'm involved in now Mm -hmm. we're trying to make a gender equity 101 workshop for people who aren't aware of these issues um, to attend and hopefully learn a bit more about it and so that's now something I'm doing to try and make a structural change because that's what needs to happen we need to have people be aware we need to make a noise but we need to change the structure of universities or higher education in general for change to really happen.
2: So I have a, a question for you and I'm not intending this to be like rude or dismissive, but like, how many people do you think there are who actually don't understand that there's a problem versus people who just like, it doesn't affect them. So they haven't engaged with it because In my experience, like the the people who are problems, if you like bring yourself to the point where you're like, I'm going to talk about the fact that there's this individual who's a problem, like every person that I've ever brought up a problem person to has been like, oh yes, that's a known issue or a known entity. It's just that like the systems in place are so set to protect the university's reputation, to protect money coming in, to bring in grants. That like, like people know it's a problem. It's just not being dealt with.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. So that's a huge part of it as well. So people, especially like you said, those who bring in a lot of money, who get a lot of media publicity, those big names, and the the university is there to protect them. The university will not protect those minorities. It won't protect women in these situations. Mm -hmm. So yeah, definitely agree with you on that. However, what I have experienced, and this is what I found very, dis- you know, uncomfortable really to experience is that I would see. So as a PhD student, even now during this job, I will frequently meet people. I mean, like maybe a good example, maybe an example is a better way of expressing this when I was doing my work at the nonprofit Talisa Meitner Society. Um, I would broadcast these events. So I'd be like, hey guys, you know, in our zoo archaeology working group, I'd be like, hey guys, tomorrow or next week, we're having a talk about data in, you know, for equality, we're having this and that happen. And the reaction I would sometimes get to that, you know, I would be this white man, very privileged from a European background, and I would kind of just huff and puff. i be like, oh, look at Shiyama being a feminist. As if that were a bad thing. And you see a fakeness there. Because on the one hand, you have this person huffing and puffing and using feminism as a negative quality. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, if you speak to them, they will pretend to be very vocal about women in science and the importance of minorities. So I do think there is a lot of... um, uh, fakeness really going Mm -hmm. on there and a lot of just yeah
2: but but Uh, that sounds to me like someone who both realizes that it's enough of a problem or that it's like construed as enough of a problem that they need to both like put on this like persona Mm -hmm. of like caring and and being more about equity and at the same time like undercutting all of that in their like personal actions because they're happy to benefit from the systems of inequality because they benefit them. They're happy
1: exactly
2: for the yeah. system to stay the same because it has a positive impact, you know, because yeah. they're more likely to have someone look at them and be like, oh, yes, white male, totally competent, rather than being like, actually, that thing you said is wrong.
1: Yeah, no, no, definitely. I'm just trying to think of... I mean, not all of it is, like, badly meant. I've had conversations, again, oh. with, like... Um, white men when it so in Germany at least if there's a open call there's usually a line that says women minorities people with disabilities um, will get priority mm-hmm. and you know that's something that's been introduced a couple of years back and I once had a conversation with one of my close friends also and I think this actually has happened a few times where they were saying like oh but that's so unfair and I think that's what I really mean with that unawareness where yeah, yeah. It, it, like you said if it doesn't affect you you kind of are unaware and sometimes they also feel victimized almost by it like oh just because i happened to be born as a white man now i'm a boogeyman and i like, that's not what it's but that's not what it's about right it's just like about giving
0: opportunities that haven't been there for others before it's just
1: exactly
2: yeah so and actually, that's what it
1: makes it hard
2: yeah yeah there was an interesting metaphor that someone used in like a diversity and equity workshop that I went to once uh, where they were talking about they, they were a server at one point and the place that they uh, were a server at, there was a guy on staff who it didn't matter if he didn't have anything in his hands and was just like returning from dropping off plates to a table. He would walk in the absolute center of the, the rows between the, or the aisle between the, the seats. And it didn't matter if you were coming towards him with, you know, six different plates balanced on your arms. Like he expected everyone to move out of his way all the time. And the first time somebody didn't move it out of his way and he actually ran into them and they had a bunch of, they were carrying a bunch of food. Um, so it kind of went everywhere and made a, a bit of a commotion. And he got so angry because he perceived this space as being his space that like no one else should occupy mm-hmm. if he was there. And the idea of someone else occupying that space because they also needed it and they were carrying a ton of heavy, you know, couple trays with food, what have you, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and like, just because like, everyone has the same right to that space. And if you are used to that space being solely for your use, because everyone has like given it to you, if someone all of a sudden doesn't, like you do feel that something is being taken away from you Mm -hmm. when in reality like you had taken something away from everyone else and everyone else has finally been like no you have to share this is kindergarten level shit (laughs)
1: yeah yeah that's so true no that's a really nice metaphor actually and i it kind of bums me out that you know we need to really need to explain ourselves for you know just you know yeah just saying like okay everyone having a space everyone feeling safe is based the basic necessity. And I mean, there's been so many studies also published about this that in having people with different backgrounds, so um, whether that be gender, sex, economic background, abilities, disabilities, what well, have you not just having diversity in your workspace actively makes your science better because people Mm -hmm. with different backgrounds ask different research questions. They approach research questions from a different perspective. And all in all, it just makes science as a whole better. And I think there's this one example where, you know, like there's so much research done into male birds of song. Mm -hmm. But then nobody ever researched the songs of female birds. And it took you know, some women scientists to be like, wait, why aren't we looking at that as well? And I think that's mm-hmm. a really nice perspective because of course, if you know, always have the same demography asking the questions, it's going to be very one-sided. So mm-hmm. really everyone just benefits from this. And also this as a pure human need, and this might sound a bit sappy, but I think, or I know everyone deserves to just feel safe at the workspace. Mm-hmm. You're spending so much time there you deserve to feel safe. You deserve to feel like you belong because that's something a lot of women, minorities, etc., just don't feel. You feel like you really need to fight for your spot at the table. And that's a lot of emotional labor
3: mm-hmm.
1: that, for example, a white man does not have to do.
0: Yeah, that's very true. And you um, also highlight a great thing that you are now in a position to be able to be this person to help others build up others and i think we're seeing that more and more in our field that once people are in a certain position it's unfortunate that at uh, you know at the student level or if you're in cultural resource management if you're at like the the technician level or what have you you can't you're you're not in that power position to be able to be supportive but I think it's wonderful that you have this organization and that there are organizations similar in the United States and the UK and so on that it's like once people are in a position of power there does seem to be some responsibility to be like okay "Okay, what can I do to bring up everybody else it's a lot but I think it's, it's great work that you're doing
1: and it's really important also like I'm doing part of my work is in these organizations but what I try to do is also have, and this is really hard for someone like me who wasn't really into social media, but I'm trying really hard to be more present on Twitter to try and, you know, engage in things like with you in this podcast or interviews or what have you know, And just a lot of just like, yeah, shoving my face and work in people's faces, really. And but it's yeah. interesting. It's not
2: shoving it's your work stuff. in people's faces. You're being invited to come on and talk yeah. about it. You're like representing your experience and that is super valuable.
1: Yeah. And what I recently realized is indeed like in the beginning, I felt like this is, you know, kind of strange um, to do this. But then I've gotten so much positive feedback over social media and emails on on people saying it's really nice to see someone who basically looks like them doing these kind of things because it makes it very relatable. And it shows that this is not just a space for your average, you know, white man, like people who look like us can do this as well.
3: Mm -hmm. Yes. And one thing I want to add too, um, is that as I think I can generalize this to women in the larger picture, but specifically also women of color is the conditioning by society and especially in academia by the culture is that you navigate around and through spaces as you are expected to appear.
0: Mm-hmm. And
3: it's like the speak when spoken to um, feeling, you know, that is the, the old fashioned, like women shall not like inhabit a space of their own unless mm-hmm. invited sort of thing. Um, whereas like this sort of promotion for a cause or even for your own career, no one blinks an eye at from, you know, ye old white dude.
2: Um, <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so and dealing with that emotionally is exhausting and it takes yeah. time away from then mm-hmm. the research and the everything else that you want to do, our time and energy away from that. Exactly. And then the bar, you know, that's presumably set the same for everyone, except that everyone needs X numbers of publication. But in addition to publication, women and people of color often have to take on more mentoring roles, more, Mm -hmm. you know, please select this team or this meeting. They spend longer talking to students who want to argue with them because the students think that they know better than them because they're a woman or a person of color. Mm -hmm. So like, It's not the same 24 hours because what you're being asked to do is so much more.
1: As women, you know, we're working twice the amount of time to prove just our knowledge, to prove that we know something. So that's already something indeed. Let's just Mm -hmm. take the archetypical white man does not need to do that. But then we also need to perform more and better science to then be seen as equally competent, I think. Mm -hmm. And then, like you said, there's all the, well, as women, we get dumped with emotional labor. So it's a lot of times also like for all the work in equity, diversity, inclusivity work, that's usually done by women, by minorities, Mm -hmm. um, sitting on committees, same story. And then we're not even talking about the um, balances at home. So looking Mm -hmm. at women who experience pregnancy, women who have children, um, a lot of the emotional labor is also being put on them while not being acknowledged by your workplace.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: And so that's something which may, you know, I would say the bar is set so much higher because we're expected to work harder scientifically. We also work hard for creating a safe space. And like, like I mentioned earlier, it's so much emotional labor that it's a lot to process as well at times because you yeah. you need to find a good balance between not just getting incredibly frustrated, angry, and depressed. Cause Cause it you don't is want so to burn much. out. Yeah, yeah. Self, exactly. Self
2: care is important. If you're listening to this, unclench your shoulders, relax <laughs> your mouth, take a deep breath. Um, do something nice for yourself.
1: Go for exactly. a run. Treat yourself.
2: <laughs> Treat <laughs> yourself. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> because you can't I mean, this pour is... from an empty vessel, right? Yeah, you yeah. have to take care of yourself first. Exactly, but. and this. I think that's a wonderful way
0: to end our final segment (laughs) is take care of yourself. I mean, it's great. We want to empowered women empower women. And beyond that, we all should be empowering each other, but that gets exhausting too. So take care of yourself. We are making positive change, but change happens slowly. So take care of yourself too.
1: And And whatever happens, you belong here and you know no is a full sentence word
0: i oh, like yes. that that is no is a full sentence oh my gosh yeah. Yeah. thank you so <laughs> much for coming on the podcast today i feel like i have learned so much about so archaeology about um the sites you were talking about but also this wonderful organization you are part of and you highlight so much of the things that we are working on in archaeology as a field throughout the world. So seriously, thank you so much for bringing your expertise and your wonderful thoughts to the podcast today.
1: Yeah. thank you so much for having me. I had a great time talking about fun science stuff, but also just about yeah, like you mentioned, the important uh, changes we're going through as a discipline. So yeah, yeah, it was really wonderful experience. Thank you so much. Well.
3: Thank you for coming. And, you know, we can always come back another time and talk more about self-care techniques, such as, exactly. you know,
1: games. Dungeons and Dragons.
3: I <laughs> exactly. <just> feel like <laughs>
0: in a lot of the breaks, we were talking about Dungeons and Dragons. I have a feeling we're going to need an episode on just Dungeons and Dragons. And I think we will have a grand old time.
1: limited yeah. but- Archaeology does a Dungeons and Dragons one shot. Oh, <laughs> I
0: love it. my gosh. It's going to happen. It's going
1: to happen we <laughs> I mean, the it. system yeah
0: <laughs> well to all our listeners thank you for listening um, if you have questions or you would like to come on the show please contact us at womenandarchaeology at gmail.com you can also find us on instagram uh, with women.in.archaeology and you can also find us on twitter where you can message us there as well at at womenarchies. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on wherever you're listening to our podcast. Check out our other podcasts and blog posts at womeninarchaeology.com. Or not at, sorry, womeninarchaeology.com. And uh, stay healthy. And
2: Thank you so much to all goodness. of our Patreon donors. That yeah. too. You helped make this podcast possible. Exactly.